Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm your host, Monica Black, and as you know, our job at New Books in History is to pick out exciting new books that the world needs to know about and interview their authors. And today, we're going to be doing just that. I have the great pleasure of talking with Lawrence Hare, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas down in Fayetteville. And Lawrence has written an unusual, I think, and most intriguing book, which I enjoyed reading very much. The book is about the role of antiquities and archaeology in the creation of Danish and national, uh, excuse me, Danish and German national identities in the borderland region uh, between those two countries from the early nationalist period through the 20th century. Uh, the book is called Excavating Nations. Archaeology, Museums, and the German-Danish Borderlands. It was just published by the University of Toronto Press this year. And we're going to talk about that intriguing book and the fascinating place Lawrence wrote about. But first, Lawrence, I'd like to ask you perhaps to begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this very fascinating part of the world and uh, how you arrived at this topic. Thanks, Monica, and thanks a lot for inviting me to uh, speak with you. Um, you know, I actually got into this topic not not as a historian, but as a student of archaeology. Um, that was my undergraduate, at, uh, and um, I, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I tell you what, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I grew up right around <laughs> that time, and I want I wanted to be cool Indiana Jones with the fedora. I ended up turning into nerdy Indiana Jones in the classroom at the beginning of the movie, but I, but I'm okay with that. Uh, so I, I did a. Uh, an internship in Nashville in the mid nineties um, at the Hermitage. Uh, and it was a, it was a public archeology span project, which meant that we worked near the mansion house. We worked on, on slave quarters or the remains of slave quarters. And uh, it was, it was going, it was 96. It was during the Olympics. And so visitors from all over the world came to Nashville and came to visit the site and watched us work. And it was very exciting. And the motto was, um, public or parish, you know, public archaeology, and, uh, and, and it was so interesting. And I learned two things at that internship. And the first was um, that because I'm colorblind, I'm a terrible archaeologist. Oh. And um, I, I cut right through many layers of history without realizing it because um, I couldn't see the changes in, in the, uh, the differences in color. Uh, the other thing I learned was that the, the distant past or the material remains of the past mean very different things to very, to different people. And so we had, we had, you know, like I said, we had people from all over the world and some would come and say, we had, we had a guest from, from Northern Ireland who came and asked why we didn't let the a, a complex past remain buried. And we had, um, uh, Southerners who came uh, of different stripes who, 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 uh, sort of used what we were working on to spin their own narratives. And so I became interested in this at the same time I was becoming interested in European studies. And so I, when I was switching careers, going from, from the, the very colorful world of archaeology to the very black and white world of history, which was, which was more my speed, I, um, I became very interested in how this relates to the creation of national identities. And, of course, there's no better place to do this than in Central Europe. And so I, I went to... Um, I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina with uh, Conrad Jarosch, and uh, I was able to pursue that uh, project there and gradually became more interested in places in Central Europe where the appropriate, the appropriation of the past was more difficult 
uh, in border regions, and particularly in this border region, which I think is a very unique case. It is, and so I'm, and and I, I like that you've you've kind of uh, um, given us a, a a way to segue into precisely the next thing that I wanted to ask you. That's very interesting, by the way, about being colorblind and not being able to see the difference stratifications. I guess you would say in the dirt. That's I had never thought about that. Um, but my question to you now is, uh, you know, the part of the world that you were that you wrote about in this book that you're about to explain to us in some great detail is the Yutlan Peninsula and uh, uh, or parts of it anyway. And the this is a part of the world that I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that not a lot of our listeners will be familiar with this place. It's a very fascinating landscape. Uh, and. It has very distinctive forms of antiquities, very distinctive forms of, um, of, of artifacts of the past, both on the surface and under the surface. So unlike the Mediterranean, uh, which you, you talk about this in your book, unlike the Mediterranean, uh, the, the northern Europe, this part of northern Europe is not the home of coliseums and cathedrals. It is the home of bog bodies and earthworks and Viking age burial mounds and the golden horns of Galahus and all sorts of other fascinating things about which we learn in your book. So I wonder if you could kind of set the scene for us a little bit and tell us about this landscape and its wonderful artifacts and what is so distinctive about it. Well, it was pretty interesting because a lot of Americans don't know this region. This is not uh, not a place where, where people go. Um, I don't know if you if you had this experience, but uh, people are less likely to be familiar with English, and um, they're, they're going to want to speak German with you, and, and that sort of thing. And I, I used to, um, I lived in Kiel when I was doing my work, and I, I would take the train every day to, to Schleswig, the little town where the the state archives are, where the museum archives are. And the and the ride, of course, I, I lived there mostly in the off, I guess, in fall, winter, sp- early spring, and um, it's a, it's a just a beautiful place. But um, it's a tough place to to spend the winter. Um, it's very flat, very cold, uh, very windy, um, and the the landscape when you compare it to say, I don't know, the the Black Forest or the Bavarian Alps, it's sort of it's sort of nondescript, and you, and you have to really spend some time there to really appreciate how how lovely it is especially in the spring when it starts becoming really green and, and, and pretty. Um, but if you know how to look, you see all kinds of, of traces of the ancient past. You can see the remains of barrows on, in the landscape. And, of course, you can see that, that Dane wall, that, that Danuverka, that stretches across the, the countryside. But it was funny because I actually went out there to visit and to go take some pictures, and I had a hard, I, I hiked out to um, the site, which is about seven kilometers from the town of Schleswig and I had a hard time finding it because I couldn't tell where it started and where the hedgerows from the different farms began or, and so it was because it's not a very prominent feature in the landscape. And the only way you really know it's there is when you find the museum that's there because it only, the the remains of the wall are only a few feet high in, in most places, and they're broken up. They've been people have robbed it over the centuries for building materials and that sort of thing. Um, and so this really interested me because th- there's a lot of prehistory in this region. There's there were tens of thousands of sites uh, across northern Germany and southern Denmark, but it's just not 
immediately present. Or you don't live with history the way you do, say, in Rome or, or something like that. And, and so that made it really interesting how fascinated people were with, uh, with this past when it's not um, as present as the Mediterranean. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, you know, last summer, a year ago, right now, my husband and I took a kind of a bicycle trip around the area that's, that sort of is, uh, right around the town of Schleswig that you're just referring to. And we rode bikes around there for several days. And, you know, when you see the, the Danaverk, the, the, when you see these kind of earthworks and things, at first you think, well, is this hill the thing that I'm supposed to be looking for? You know, and and then and then that's exactly right. When you see the museum, you realize, aha, yes, this is it. And once you start riding your bike around a bit more, you realize that the thing is present all over the place and other things, you know, Viking Age burial mounds that you can walk up to the top of and all sorts of other neat stuff. But you're right. It is not. It's a more there's something a little bit um I think something a little bit more unheimlich about it, as the Germans might say, there's something a little bit more mysterious about that landscape because you have to sort of get in touch with it a little bit. And I think that was precisely the way it was treated up until, uh, you know, the early 19th century. It was, uh, uh, you know, the, you have stone dolmens treated as heathen altars and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. That's right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because let's talk about the early part of your, of the history that you recount in this book because the story that you tell, and I was very impressed by this. I liked the way you did this. The story really begins in, in a certain way in the early modern period with sort of private collectors and their curiosity cabinets. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the way that we get from those private collectors to the beginnings, really, of modern museums, which is one of the stories that you tell here. I think what, what I expected to find, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to tell a little bit of backstory. I mean, really, really what interested me was, the moment in which the question over the border began to converge with the intense interest in prehistory. And, and that fascinated me, but I wanted to get to that, get to that point. And so what I expected to see was this sort of, um, sort of sense of the, of the mysteriousness of artifacts giving way to the cold empirical view of the, of the professional scholar or the scientific archeologist but what I actually found was it, it, it was that the, the the sort of rational sense of the past was already there in the in the early modern period when the uh, the collectors attempting to um, sort of bring all of this knowledge together. And originally, it was sort of in an undifferentiated way. You know, you can you can imagine these collecting cabinets that that don't have a or the collecting cabinets maybe of the of the 17th century that don't have a, a, a clear sense of order. Ole Worms, uh, big, where his collecting cabinet was really a room just filled with stuff. And there's no discernible set of system when you look at it, giving way in the enlightenment to more, to more taxonomic ways of collecting where things are organized into, um, into more, into patterns and that sort of thing. But what was really interesting was, the, the rationality was there, but what seemed to grow over time was the emotional attachment going into the 19th century, that the, that the past, and, and the, I talk about this a lot in the book, that the past came to have a certain value, um, first to individuals and then increasingly to their communities. Yes, that's right. I, I, I really like the way you upend that story in a certain way. 
um, by reminding, well, maybe reminding is not the right word, but, but um, emphasizing how important the emotional attachment to these relics became over time. And it became, I mean, arguably over the course of your book, it became more and more of an emotional attachment. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I talk about certain, you know, poets that, that, and, and one of the things that really interested me was you have poets in the early 19th century, and then you'll have writers who, or maybe they're attempting to be poets in the early 20th century. And they're, and they're, the way they're writing about these sites clearly indicates their desire to place themselves to sort of, I, I talk about emplacement of the subject, sort of place themselves in the site, make themselves a part of that somehow to sort of overcome sort of some sort of alienation between the the present and the distant past and that that's really to me the the root of that sort of um uh, i guess maybe romantic attachment to those sites and those artifacts yeah that's right um well what about what happens in the early nationalist period which for our purposes we'll just define as the you know sometime after the french revolution what what sorts of how, why do uh a, a kind of, I would say, a kind of evolving group of people are interested in these artifacts over time. The, num- the people who are interested in them changes somewhat, and their identities change. And you have I, one of the things I found interesting was the difference between sort of um, lay layperson collectors and laypersons, uh, sort of armchair scholars, and then these increasingly sort of professionalized scholars and archaeologists. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, take us maybe through the story? From the early part of the 19th century, let's say to the wars of the um, to the wars between between Germany and Denmark in the 19th century. Well, you, you know the the Danes took Napoleon's side for various reasons. Uh, it, it, maybe more to a degree that they may not have wanted to, but they they were on Napoleon's side and. Um, they, in the course of the war, of course, Copenhagen was bombarded a couple of times by the English. Um, and the, the concerns about loss for the Danish nation that Denmark was actually, people find this hard to believe. Denmark was actually a fairly powerful country before the Napoleonic era. It had a, it had one of the best, one of the largest navies, uh, in the world. Um, but not after, after it lost a tremendous amount of territory, and uh, this really caused Danes to have a, 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 a very intense period of soul-searching. And, and it all happened to coincide with the loss of artifacts. And, and I talk a little bit specifically about the, the golden horns of Galahus, these um, beautiful um, horns that are engraved with um, hybrid animal humanoid figures uh with long been a mystery about what what they where, where they have um or, or what they speak to in um prehistoric or, 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 or early medieval culture um and and they were recovered in Schleswig-Holstein they were recovered right near where the present day border is uh, at different times and they were in Copenhagen and they were stolen during the Napoleonic Wars and melted down uh, by a, an unscrupulous um, jeweler um, and lost, and so that 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 happens exactly at the moment this war is happening, and, and Denmark is is on the cusp of, of of losing its status. And the same time, this passion for the past is emerging in in uh, Northern Europe, and so um, it all it all comes together. You have you have poets writing, sort of using allegory, talking about the golden horns as the as the symbols of the Danish nation. And that sort of thing, and so it, it, it's difficult to say whether 
these antiquarians are nationalists first or they become nationalists later because it's, it's an amazing point of convergence in, in the first couple of decades of the 19th century. But what I thought was interesting was the first collecting society, and I write a lot about them, that formed in Kiel what consisted of people who are on completely opposite sides of the emerging border dispute. You have you have the the first museum director in Kiel when the museum is first established in 1835. He's he's a strongly pro Danish uh, partisan figure, but he's working side by side with equally ardent uh, pro German Schleswig Holsteiners. And so it's so interesting to see how the degree to which the enterprise of studying the past is it, on the one hand inseparable from these emerging national nationalist causes and nationalist ideologies. And on the other hand, um, taking place within a very collaborative community. And, and it can't happen any other way. The museum in Kiel could never have a, a, a emerged without the assistance of um, the famed antiquarian C.J. Thompson, who is uh, the, the founder of the what is now the Danish National Museum in Copenhagen. Yes, and I thought that was one of the places where the um, the transnational, as we like to say now, a nature of the study was so particularly important and so um, impressively done on your part because these uh, cross-border alliances and relationships, as complicated as they sometimes became, um, were a constant feature of the history that you tell. And and as you said, the collections that exist in one place wouldn't have been able to exist there, wouldn't have, have formed in the first place or taken the shape that they did without without those those kinds of cross-border um, collaborations. Right. So tell us a little bit about the history of archaeology, because I did not know that about you, that you were a historian of that, you you know, sort of began as a not as a historian of archaeology, but that you began your 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 formal study as a, you know, when you were in, an undergrad um, in that field. And so that actually makes me see the book in a completely different way. I wish I had known that before. But in any case, um, for me, I think one of the things I learned the most about from reading your book was about the history of archaeology. And I wonder if you could talk about what what it is about your book. Uh, no, that's not, the, that's not exactly what I want to say. What I want to say is how um, – what's the contribution of your book to that history, the this, this specific uh, sort of Danish-German contribution to that, to that history of archaeology? Yeah, I think I think the book contributes in a couple of ways. Uh, I think going back maybe twenty years, archaeologists have really been talking a lot about the the ways in which their scholarship is engaged politically, and in which it, it has been informed by, uh, particularly by nationalism, not not exclusively, but but especially. And so, um, a lot of the literature on the connections between nationalism and archaeology are coming from archaeologists like Philip uh, Cole and um, uh, Bruce Trigger and you know and folks like that. Um, and so what what you've seen is book after book dealing with ar- archaeology in the in Germany or archaeology. Uh, even you know, Philip Cole, for example, wrote wrote a has been writing on archaeology in the Soviet Union where. Ethnicity uh, sort of stands in, in a way that nationalism worked in Central Europe, um, and so what what isn't happening is, or what, ha- what what I noticed wasn't happening enough was that there wasn't a real discussion about um, what happens when the 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 lines of appropriation aren't clear, and and I think that's what makes one one of the things that makes Schleswig-Holstein so interesting is. Um, 
there isn't a clear difference between Germans and Danes, especially in prehistoric terms. I mean, all, all uh, the relationship between archaeology and nationalism always entails a projection of the modern self onto ancient material. Mm. Or, but in this case, it, it's not it's not clear at all because the only difference really is a linguistic difference. I mean, there are cultural differences, but you know, I gave, I gave examples of some of these antiquarians that made conscious decisions to, to quit speaking German. They were German speakers and they decided they wanted to be pro Danish. So they just changed languages. Um, you know, diaries were the next day uh, they're writing in Danish and they're because that that's what they're identifying with. And so I wanted to see how that was negotiated in this region. Um, and then I was really interested also in the in the relationship between um, professional archaeologists and and amateurs on the one hand, but also with the public. And I was really interested in how how um, professional archaeologists claim authority to talk about the past. Because I mean, it's archaeology is different from history. It's it's everywhere. You know, people find people find the past in their backyard, uh, or or you'll find it. You know, the 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 cover of the book features this Iron Age boat, the, the Newdown boat, and, the, and that boat was found in the behind a school, uh, and so by 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 a school teacher, and so it's um it's interesting to see how how archaeologists claim the authority to be the ones to talk about what that means, and and what I found was over time at moments when institutions were relatively weak that the discussion about what the past means to the nation is really not in the hands of the archaeologists as much as it is in the hands of laymen or, or, or the public at large. Yes, that's very interesting. Can you give us an example of that from the book that, you've, that, you, that, was, you, know, that you think would, be, that would stick in people's minds? Um, about this sort of public professional uh, dispute? Yeah, exactly. Well, well, I talk a lot about – there's a couple. One, one is I talk a lot about uh, Johanna Messdorf, uh, who I find just really fascinating. Not a lot written about Johanna Messdorf. She's one of the first female professors in Germany, and she's a woman in a, in a very male-dominated field at the end of the 19th century. But she's she is uh, – she's a very interesting person because on the one hand, she's really interested in, in activating the public to help the growth of archaeology in Schleswig-Holstein, but she's also very much aware of the need for her institution, her museum, to have the final authority on how to interpret the past. And so there are a couple of incidents where um, locals in Schleswig-Holstein want to establish um, local museums, like Kreismuseen, and she shuts them down. And she says, no, that, that, that stuff, that material should be in Kiel in this museum where the professionals can work with it. But then um, later during, during the Weimar years in Germany, when there's no money for the, for the museum, the museum shuts its doors during the First World War and doesn't reopen until um, in the 1920s. Um, there's, no, there's really nobody talking about the past. And so you have um, uh, this... Um, more prolific lay literature coming out about um, about local regions and especially Holstein about how how uh, and it's all about settlement. It's all about which people settled in which region. Were these Germans? Were they Slavs? Were they Danes? Whatever it is, and um, you, you start seeing similarities between the literature in the 1920s and literature back in the 18th century, which which sort of merged 
quasi-scientific accounts of archaeology with biblical origin stories and that sort of thing. And that had sort of disappeared from the literature, but then it reappears at a moment when the museum's doors are closed. Yes, that's very interesting. One of the examples I was thinking about, and maybe I'm maybe I'm misremembering now. It's been a little while since I read your book, but um, there was an I remember I seem to remember a, a case in which a bog. It was about the determination of the identity of a bog body. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Insvirin man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about him because I, first of all, you'll have to explain. Maybe some of our listeners won't be familiar with the term bog body, and that's interesting enough on its own. So maybe you could talk about the, the general concept of a bog body and then talk about the specific case. Well, well, this region um, contains a lot of fins and bogs. The, um, the soil has, it's just full of peat. Um, and the chemical composition of this soil lends itself to the preservation of organic material, which is one of the reasons why archaeologically speaking, this region is so interesting because you can actually recover organic material from prehistoric or early medieval sites. So you can get leather, sometimes you can get um, cloth, sometimes, and you can get um, human remains. So these are the bog bodies. You find these um, individuals, and and there's lots of them, uh, lots more than you hear, but there's some that are really well-known and then some that are um, less well-known, but there's, there's lots of them that are recovered over the past few centuries. And the one that I talked about um, sort of coincided with, with the discussion I was having about the emergence of a scientific archaeology. And this is mm-hmm. an inspiring man. And he's, he's found um, in, in sort of a rural region of Schleswig-Holstein. And originally the, the thinking is, is that he's a murder victim because he's still got flesh on the bones. And he has visible wounds to his head. So they think, well, we've, we've found a murder uh, and so they're they're calling out the police, and of course the it, the locals don't really know what to do with this. But it becomes clear to them pretty quickly that this is not a a recent find; that this is actually a um, uh, a, a prehistoric individual. And so the the local the local officials contact the museum in Kiel and ask the ask the scholars there to come out in a hurry and take a look at it because he's already become the subject of, of uh, local curiosity and people are taking bits and pieces of, you know, parts of the artifacts that are associated with the body or bits of clothing or what have you in there. And so these guys have to come out and um, make a determination and, and uh, immediately they say, well, yeah, this, this belongs in the museum. We should be studying this scientifically. Yes, that's right. And you know, um that I love the way you put that scene together actually of the the body being found and nobody's quite sure what to do with it and the pastor gets called and people are coming to take artifacts of their own from the site and I love the whole way that it unfolds because it it it's a great example of this thing that you show throughout the book of the um I wouldn't even say tension although sometimes it's a tension but there's a there's a way that the that local amateurs and museums and the state and institutions and scholars and all these people are very um are very much involved in the in the story that you tell. So there's a there's a there's always a kind of in, interesting and evolving cast of characters. Well, that's that's because the the, the past has this sort of individual resonance. It, mm-hmm. it it matters to me as an individual, and I mean that, that was part of the origin of all of this that people developed their, their personal attachment, and so that a lot of these amateur collectors feel very threatened by um, 
large-scale institutions or museums or scientific endeavors. And so there's a lot of concern to, to sort of work with those individuals and at the same time try to pursue a real science. And, I mean, I think that sort of thing still is still an issue um, in archaeology. I think it's still an issue in history. I mean, I think historians contend um, to, o- over what the narrative of the past is. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we, we can see this happening all the time around us, but, you know, that historians want to assert a, a particular way of seeing what happened. And um, and sometimes the public will go along with that interpretation, that understanding, that narrative, and sometimes the public will not. And I can also imagine, too, you know, that there's a gentleman who comes to the park next to where I to where I live and, and with one of those devices for, um, what are they called? Where you skim across the surface of the earth and then it, it tells you if something's buried there. Metal. It's a metal detector. That's what they're called. Sure. And I think I can imagine if he started finding things there and somebody came and said, you can't do that here anymore. He would be really upset. And he doesn't necessarily have an attachment to the things that he finds, except that, you know, he hopes that they might be valuable, but, uh, you can one can imagine you know a situation in which um, that would be very upsetting to people to have something that they that they had valued for its own you know for their own relationship to it being intervened upon by some kind of outside um, institution or scholars or whoever. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting is that both the both the scholars and the and the public share a sense that this past has value to the nation. It means something to our entire community. And I think that actually creates some of the tension about who's going to say what that is, what what, what that significance is. That's right. Talk, think, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say that's just something that sort of that, – that's part of the issue with with archaeology. Is part of the issue with history is when you make the assumption that I'm doing what I'm doing because it has value to my community, has value to my identity today – um, you, you've already undercut your objectivity as a scholar, and I think that's an operative um, an issue throughout the, the throughout the history that I cover in the book. Yes, I think you're right. Tell us a little bit about about high taboo, well, or what the Germans call high taboo, um, because you spend quite a lot of time in this book on that particular um, site, that particular um, ancient city. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, Haidabu, just simply put, is an awesome site. It, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily look awesome. I mean, you said you had visited there. It's just, yes, you know, it's yes. essentially just a horseshoe-shaped mound, earthwork around a field. Um, but it in in the uh, early medieval period, it was the home of a very bustling um, Viking Age trading town. And today, even today, it is the largest archaeological site in the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, and it is still an ongoing investiga- uh, excavation. They've been excavating there now for about a century, mm-hmm. actually a little more than a century. And I, I talked about it as, as I mean, because one of the things I think is interesting about Schleswig-Holstein is that it is the home of of so many important sites and artifacts it, and, and also so many important theories about prehistoric archaeology, that it has that it has real significance as a place for the development of prehistoric archaeology. But I also talked about it as a place that was it was discovered in the decades after the border wars of the 19th century, which were acrimonious, they were bloody, Germans and Danes really, <laughs> really weren't feeling very well disposed towards one another. But it was a site where 
German and Danish scholars came back together to collaborate. And because of the success of their collaboration, they were able to identify this site, which had been a mystery for a very, very long time. People knew about Haidabu. It was in, in uh, extant literature. It was, there were rune stones that alluded to Haidabu, but nobody really knew where it was. And so its discovery was a very big deal at the turn of the 20th century. Yes, Haitabu is an amazing place to see. Uh, you're right. It, it's, it is, again, one of those places in that region that is, is not impressive at first glance until you start walking around and thinking about what, what used to be there and what remains of it. And it is, it is really just amazing. Um, I, I was, uh, I think a lot of people will probably be interested in, um, per, maybe particularly, I, you know, I guess it depends on the reader, but, um, certainly by the time of National Socialism, Archaeology, German archaeology has taken on a very uh, distinctive, shall we say, character. And the Germans um, under National Socialism don't just do excavations in Scandinavia, but also in Poland and other places that come under their occupation regime. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the specificities of that. And I guess in some ways – Archaeology changes under the Third Reich. There's no doubt about that. In some ways, it doesn't. And in some ways, I found it very interesting that these relationships that you develop earlier mm, persist in certain ways. I think they're actually essential to understanding why a lot of archaeology – and that, that's the question is why do German archaeologists who are professional scholars who have commitments to objectivity, why do they work – or, or collaborate in such an overtly political way with the with the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Archaeology is a is a big deal in the Third Reich because uh, you know as you know the Germans are attempting to create the the Volksgemeinschaft uh, the the sort of the racial community um, and they want to ground that so that it has the the sort of sense of eternity that attaches to it that it has a deep history. Mm-hmm. And so the remains of um, Germanic ancestors becomes extremely valuable. But given the the sort of um, polycentric nature of the of the Nazi state, it's not surprising that a lot of high level functionaries develop personal attachments to the past, and it actually feeds into the competition between groups. And it and of course the 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 two that become rivals over competing for archaeological sites are Alfred Rosenberg and Heinrich Himmler. Uh, and so archaeologists find themselves with opportunities that they didn't have before because prehistoric archaeology no, doesn't have the sort of cachet that um, Mediterranean studies has. Right. Uh, and so the, these guys offer a chance for you know increased funding, state support, prestige. And so a lot of the time it's a choice between working with the Rosenberg office or working with um, the SS of Heinrich Himmler. And the archaeologists that I studied tended to side uh, with Himmler. They tended to work within the SS. And they, um, they participated in war crimes. They participated in looting in Eastern Europe. They used the research they were doing uh, on, on sites like Haidabu. And, of course, Haidabu gets a, a huge injection of cash uh, from Himmler's group um, to continue uh, excavations at Haidabu. This is after a period – when the site had not been, in fact, there were, I want to say it was 15 years in the early 20th century when nobody was digging at Haidabu because nobody had any money to dig at Haidabu. And so here come the Nazis, and they're offering tens of thousands of, of, of Reichsmarks to, to fund these digs. And so um, I became really interested in sort of exploring 
why the uh, how and why I should say these scholars um, sort of progressively become involved in collaborating with the regime. Right. And then what happens during the war? Because that's a very the war is um, not just not just creates tensions between the relationships of scholars to one another that, that had been developed in the earlier parts of your book. Uh, but it materially comes and visits itself upon some of these sites so that people are worried about uh, whether or not certain sites will be preserved during the fighting. People are worried. Um, one of the stories that I remember particularly from the book was the story of the museum in Kiel that is bombarded. I think that you said that most of the artifacts are removed and, and are made more or less safe, but, but there's, you know, that the war becomes a, a big factor in, in, in the story that you tell. Well, I think the most important thing is that Scandinavia, Denmark and Norway are occupied by the Nazis during the war. And so uh, the, these, these scholars that during the 1930s had become increasingly involved in the regime and I talk a lot about the, the archaeologist Herbert Jankun, who is now pretty well known as, as a very high-ranking official in the SS who, who um, was sort of the, the premier scholar for Himmler's organization in, in terms of prehistoric archaeology. He, uh, Jankun goes to France and works on the Bayou Tapestry shortly after the conquest of France. He goes to the Ukraine. He supervises the looting of museums in the Crimea. Uh, and... And then he goes to Norway, and his colleagues go to Denmark, and they're in a situation where, uh, for example, in Denmark, the Luftwaffe wants to build airstrips, but they want to build them on top of um, ancient burial sites. And so you're you're supporting the regime's ideological goals in to, to greater or lesser degrees, but you're having to um, confront them over their treatment of of ancient remains, but you're also having to deal with the implications of, of what this is doing to the relationship you have as international scholars, that your, your colleagues in Denmark, whose work is absolutely essential to your own work, are now on the other side of this war. And so I think that creates a really um, uh, tremendous uh, set of difficulties for scholars on, on all sides during the war, and it, and it has lasting effects after the war. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I recently had the chance now just to, to sort of move to the period after the Second World War, uh, which is the way you sort of finish up the book. And you finish up really in the present day. I mean, you, you, you take, you know, you, you in, a, in what's a, a, a slim and I think very elegantly written book, you cover a lot of territory. Um, but I, I was recently, and I think this is, was in a way one of the great thrills uh, of my life because it was such a wonderful place to visit. The Danish National Museum in Copenhagen yes, is just one of the most splendid. And we only looked at the first floor because it was so, there were the, the number of antiquities packed into that building are so extraordinary. And I wondered, um, and for anyone who hasn't yet had the chance to go there, if you, if you can take the opportunity to do it, do it. Uh, you'll be blown away by the antiquities that you'll see. Um, but I don't know of a comparable museum in Germany. And I sort of thought at, at the time, I just thought, well, there must have been more stuff in Denmark. But then I wondered after having re- read your book, is there another reason why? I mean, you said at one point in your book, I'm going to quote now, you explain that state institutions, this is a quote, in Denmark end up dominating the dialogue on prehistory. And I wondered if you could, does that have something to do with the war? Does that have something to do with what happens after the war? And the fact that the past, as the Germans had thought of it and uh, thought of it up to then, 
um, they, they can't, let's just put it this way, they can't have the same relationship to the past that they had had up until 1945. Does that play any role in the fact that, um, that, the, that the Danish museum is so much more developed than any comparable museum in Germany? Or maybe I'm just ignorant about the, about uh, other well, I museums. Think, I think that's partly true. I mean, I think the institutional history of the Danish National Museum matters because um, it, it was, you know, of course, Denmark is not, is not fractured in the way that the German states are in the 19th century. And so it's um, archaeology in Denmark grows up around uh, C.J. Thompson and uh, Jens Warsaw and some of these high-profile archaeologists who, who had, the, had the blessing of the monarchy. Uh, and so the Danish National Museum, and plus it's a smaller, it's a smaller region. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the implications of that. Um, I think the war matters, though, because the, the staff at the museum in Copenhagen really use the preservation of remains as a way to sort of rally the people of Denmark. And they, uh, it, you know, the Danes managed to negotiate with the, with the occupation. Of course, the occupation in Denmark is very different than it is in other parts of Europe. It's, there's a much lighter touch uh, in Denmark compared to, certainly compared to the Soviet Union, for example. Mm-hmm. And so they they negotiate the rights for Danish labor to be involved in the in heritage preservation for sites that are endangered by building during the war and and that and so that becomes a patriotic duty for Danes and so the museum becomes a center of that um, during the war so I, I definitely think it matters yeah um, and it's again an amazing thing well yeah and again the, the the museum the relationship between Germans and Danes is essential because like as you mentioned the museum in Kiel is absolutely destroyed the the famous rune stones of Heidebu which are in the are on the cover like if you in the little jacket of the of the book the the rune stones are removed only 3 days before the museum is completely bombed uh, along with the rest of the city and and so the a new museum has to be built and there there are deliberations and they decide to build it in Schleswig in the town of Schleswig, which was the seat of the Duke of Schleswig, and they actually build it in his in the Duke's castle. It's a great it's a beautiful museum site. If you ever are in northern Germany, you should definitely go to Schleswig and see the uh, Schleswig-Holstein uh, Landesmuseum. But um, the site is important because the, there, were, there were barracks on the site that belonged to Danish military units. And so the, the site has a history that applies to both Germans and to Danes. And so it becomes one of these other sites of reconciliation after the war. And once again, the Germans could never have succeeded. Or I, don't think, I think it would be much more difficult for them to succeed in reestablishing their museum without Danish assistance, certainly without the blessing of Danish scholars at a time after World War II when there was not an insignificant movement uh, among some Danes to change the border again after World War II and to reclaim some of the territory that the Germans had taken um, in the 19th century. Right, earlier. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, tell me uh, what what you feel like the main contribution. So I was just reading, as it happens, I was just reading the American Historical Review yesterday and I read a, a review of a book and I think the first line of the review is something like Borderlands are back, which of course they have been back for a little while. I mean, people have been writing Borderlands histories for the, for the past several years and, um, produced some really excellent work on, on the, on that topic in various fields. I wonder if you could tell us what's, what's unique about having written the book now and reflected on it for a while. What is, unique about this particular borderland region and what does it tell us about european history or about borderlands generally 
Well, one, one of the things I wanted to, one of the arguments I wanted to make in the book is I wanted people to look at, at Schleswig-Holstein's, um, I think Danish scholars know this because Schleswig-Holstein, the, the conflicts over the border are so important in Danish history. But I don't think German scholars uh, or, or historians of Germany see it in the same way. And part of that's linguistic. I mean, they're, you know, maybe not having access to the Danish language or, or whatever it is. And, um, but, but this was this in, in a nation state that is trying to identify itself and often trying to identify itself against um, French influence or uh, Mediterranean influence, you know, the influence of the classical world. This is this is the place that in, in Germany, at least, where where the remains of the Germanic past are the most unadulterated. They're the most pure. Mm. And so I talk a little bit about this, about the interest, for example, in in Iceland and Icelandic sagas. You know, things that have not been corrupted by the influence of of Roman culture or Christianity. And so this is where um, Germanophiles who who were fascinated by their by what they wanted to see as their own unique prehistory. This is where they turned, and so this is part of the reason why the region is so important to Germans in the 19th century. And th- of course, the, the the war over Schleswig-Holstein is the first of the of the wars of unification, and it, it's it, it's hugely significant. Now, what I also wanted to do, I've been really interested. You know, I think of course border border studies have been going on at a great clip for many years. And one of the things that has come out of this recently is this, is this tendency to question the, the extent to which nationalist activists or nationalist ideologues are actually successful in converting people in borderlands to their point of view. And so there's a lot of discussion about so-called national indifference. Um, you know, if you've read the work of Tara Jara or James Bjork or... Um, but but I, I I don't want to I don't want to contradict that scholarship. I think that's very good scholarship. But I want to take it one more step and look. You know, I think now we're ready to have a little bit more nuanced view and look at how these identities and these border regions are created not as a as a distinction between the the regional identity or one nation or another, but they're actually coming out of a very complex matrix of identities. And I I really emphasized four. I emphasized the the, the regional identity, the respective national identities, the, the, the personal attachment, the individual identification that came with uh, interest in antiquity, and, and then professional identity that attached to the archaeologists, to the antiquarians, to those that were working with the remains. And I was really interested to see how those interact um, to sort of shape the appropriation of the past. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very situational thing. I mean, I think that the, this particular borderland region, and I thought about the same thing when I was, when I was reading the book, this is a very different kind of region than the region that, uh, that Tarazara has written about or, or, or other scholars. Um, there's, there's something unique about this place. And I thought that you took a very unique, um, vantage point on it and have given us something really, really interesting. Uh, and I hope something I hope that will inspire people to not only to read the book, I hope our conversation inspires people to read the book, but I also hope in some, in some way that it will inspire people to go and visit this fascinating place and, uh, and, and see for themselves what, I mean, you know, the Alps are great, but Schleswig-Holstein to me is, um, just the most classically interesting place in, in of, of all the places I've visited in, in Germany. So 
I hope we've done that. Listen, Lawrence, we've taken up a lot of your time and you've been a fantastic, uh, you've been a fantastic interview subject. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I wonder yeah. if, um, if we could just as a kind of a last question, if you'll, if you'll indulge us, uh, to ask you what you're working on now and, um, and let us let people know what, what it, what that thing is. Well, right now, you know, having completed this study in a, in a very narrow frame, looking at a, at a relatively small region, I've been very interested more broadly in the German fascination with the North and and these sort of and these sort of transnational influences on on the creation of the German nation or the creation of the German national ideal. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature on on sort of the classical world, you know, if Sue Marchand's work on, on Phil Hellenism, also on, on Orientalism. Um, but less attention, I think, has been given towards the ways in which the, the idea of the North, the idea of Scandinavia or the Nordic world um, impacted German thought. So I'm, so I'm exploring that right now. And one of the things I've found really early is that, is that the, the interest in the Nordic world was sort of reciprocated by Scandinavian scholars. So you have German scholars and Scandinavian scholars once again working together to sort of unlock this this uh, m- um, mystery, whether it's in terms of culture or religion, language, uh, history, prehistory. Um, but that over time, uh, the, the process of that common exploration breaks down and collaboration, in some cases, gives way to appropriation. And I think that shapes the way Germans see the North uh, in the 20th century. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. I mean, that's, a, that's going to be a very interesting topic, I think, and a big one. So now that you've learned Danish, are you, are you working on Norwegian? What are you working on next? Well, I, if you can speak Danish, you can usually read Norwegian. The languages are pretty similar. Yeah. So. Uh, but they're spoken quite differently, aren't they? They are spoken very differently. Yeah. So, in a lot of ways, I'm um, since I've been working on this project for a while, I find myself coming back around and sort of brushing up again on my Danish. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a great language. I love it, and I, I, I want to know. Uh, I want to be able to speak it better for sure. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, so I, I envy you. I think that's fantastic. I think this is a great project, and I think this is a wonderful book. We've been speaking today with Lawrence Hare. Professor of History, uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. He has a new book out. I hope that you'll, uh, I hope that you'll go read it, and get your library, local library, to buy it or buy it yourself. It's called Excavating Nations, Archaeology, Museums, and the German-Danish Borderlands, published by University of Toronto Press just this year. Lawrence, thank you so much for talking to me. It was a blast. Thank you, Monica. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>